People have various goals and ambitions that they strive for in life. Maybe your ambition is for physical health or maybe it's personal satisfaction. Some of you may have an ambition of financial stability and maybe for others it's continuing their education. Whatever it may be, if we're all honest, all of us have ambitions. And ambitions in and of themselves are not bad. There's nothing wrong in and of themselves. But my question is this. Is that all there is in life? For us as Christians, the answer should be no. The Apostle Paul says that our ambition is to be pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And I want to ask you, Christian, is that your ambition? Is that your desire to be pleasing to God? See, that ambition is different from the ambitions of the world. The world's ambitions are often driven by pride and selfish desire. Our ambition should be driven by a love for what is honorable. And what is honorable for you and I, believer, is to be pleasing to God. I also want to be clear that this ambition to be pleasing God has nothing to do with your state in life. It has nothing to do with your situation in this life. As Paul said, we strive to please God whether at home or whether absent. Whether we're here or whether we're, whether we're there. Now we can say that pleasing God's the Christian ambition. But what does it actually mean to please God? At the start of his ministry, Jesus said that pleasing God is, in Matthew 6.33 is simply this. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. If you want to please God, seek him first, his kingdom first, and his righteousness. Now let's talk about that, that verse for a second there. The word seek, zetio, doesn't mean that you're looking for something. The word seek means turn to him and strive to humbly and sincerely follow and obey him. As well, it implies effort. Listen, you don't accidentally, humbly, and sincerely follow and obey someone. That's a choice. And so if you're going to please God, believer, you've got to humble yourself and follow and obey Him. You've got to choose to do that. Furthermore, Jesus says that we're to seek God's kingdom and His righteousness first. Now that term first here, protas, communicates the idea of priority or prominence. The priority in your life, believer, is to want to humble yourself and follow and obey Him, His kingdom, His righteousness. This is of greatest importance. Because seeking God's kingdom and His righteousness is not step one in pleasing God. Seeking God's kingdom and righteousness is of greatest importance in pleasing God. Now God's kingdom is the sphere of his external or his eternal rule. God's kingdom exists in several manifestations. Let's talk about God's kingdom for a second. The kingdom of God is a universal kingdom. It includes everything in the created realm. So when we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about his, the entire created realm. Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. 
Daniel chapter 4 and verse 3. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. So the kingdom of God is universal. But I also want you to see, secondly, the kingdom of God is spiritual. The kingdom of God is spiritual. To be part of the kingdom of God means you have repented and submitted to the lordship of Jesus. Matthew 4, 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, because why? The kingdom of God is at hand. John chapter 3, verse 5 to 7. Truly, truly, Jesus said, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. John 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So the kingdom of God is not only universal, but it's a spiritual realm. And then thirdly, the kingdom of God is a literal realm in which Christ will one day physically reign over earth. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. In those days, the kings of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. That kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever. Now, friends, you and I as believers are presently enjoying the manifestation of God's kingdom in its spiritual form. Think about the model of prayer that Jesus gave us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Matthew 6, verse 10. Now those two statements are parallel. God's kingdom will come as God's will is done. So seeking God's kingdom means what? Doing God's will. So ask yourself, are you doing God's will? Listen, you've got to, you, you say, Pastor, I want to please God. You know, listen, if I ask for a raise of hand, if I ask you right now, Right wherever you're listening, if I said, listen, do you want to please God? Everybody who's going to say, yes, I want to please God. Great. Then how many of you are humbling yourself and willing to follow him? How many of you are going to make that choice? Because if you're not going to make that choice, then guess what? You're not really interested in pleasing God. Okay, now, some of you have said that, okay, yeah, I want to do that. I'll, I'll make that choice. Great. Are you willing to make this of greatest importance? Well, you know, I've got this, I've got that to do. Listen, we all have things to do. But if you really want to please God, you're going to say, yes, I want to make seeking His kingdom and His righteousness my greatest priority. Okay, great. Now, some of you are still with me. Now, let me ask you this. Are you willing to do God's will? And along with that, irrevocably connected to God's kingdom is His righteousness. What is God's righteousness? Righteousness is God's justice. It's his standard to which we are to conform. Richard Strauss says that God's righteousness or justice is the natural expression of his holiness. We see the righteousness of God witnessed in the law and the prophets. It's manifested through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 to 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans chapter 3, 21 to 22. 
Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is no distinction. My friends, at the moment of your salvation, you were imparted God's righteousness. He gifted you righteousness through the redemption accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Romans 3.24 tells us that we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.17 and 21 says, For if by the transgression of one death reign through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you received God's righteousness. That means you're conforming your life to His holiness. So you say you're pleasing God, great. Are you conforming your life to God's holiness? As R.C. Sproul stated, righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. Listen, that's the simplest acid test you can possibly take to establish your sincerity as a believer. Are you righteous? I don't know. Well, put it this way. Are you doing what's right in the sight of God? And, beloved, remember what James says, to him that knows to do right and do not, it is sin. To be honest, there are many listening who have confused spirituality with righteousness. And there is a danger, oh let me warn you, there is a danger of confusing spirituality and righteousness. Because I'm going to tell you, there are many who claim to be spiritual and they're not righteous. Spirituality is conforming to various disciplines such as studying the Bible, praying, attending church, and evangelizing. Now, to be honest, and that's good that the preacher's honest, right? To be honest, spirituality, those spiritual disciplines are good. You ought to be studying your Bible. You ought to be praying. You ought to be attending church. You ought to be evangelizing. But let me also say those things are worthless if they're not driving you to be righteous. If they're not driving you to do right in the sight of God. Why are you studying your Bible if not to do what's right? Why are you praying if it's not to do right? Why are you attending church if it's not to do what's right? Why are you evangelizing the lost if it's not to do what's right? If you simply see spirituality as the goal of your Christian walk, or you see spirituality as the means of pleasing God, then you're going to fail miserably. Your life is nothing more than, a, than conformity to a checklist. I read my Bible, check. I prayed today, check. I went to church today, check. I evangelized today, great, check. So what? If it didn't drive you to be righteous, if it didn't drive you to conform to God's standard... It is nothing more than empty religion. Matthew 5 and verse 20, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Listen, the Pharisees and the scribes had their righteousness. People looked at them and, oh, look at them. They read their Bible, they pray, they go to synagogue and they evangelize. They must be spiritual. All the while they're plotting murder in their heart. Our ambition should be pleasing God. That is, we should be seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. We should be living a life that conforms to God's person, God's nature, and God's law. 
And so, my friend, I ask, are you conforming to God's person, to God's nature, to God's law? Allow me to read again 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or present, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Friend, it is your duty to learn or find out what is pleasing to God. And so we're going to ask ourselves in the next few moments what it means to be pleasing to God. How can we be pleasing to God? Knowing how to please God. Ephesians 5 and verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now I believe the scripture lays out for us six means by which we can please the Lord. First of all, we can know how to please God by demonstrating faith. By demonstrating faith. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Pleasing God begins by demonstrating faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So what is faith? Faith, according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The term assurance and conviction describes two sides of the same coin. That word assurance, hubastasis, is a guarantee. Whereas conviction, ilikos, is the proof. Faith is based on a guarantee. The guarantee is the character of God. He cannot lie. Faith is based on proof. The proof is God's nature as demonstrated in creation. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, the attributes of God, such as His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. Listen, you want to know God? Listen, you don't even have to crack open the Bible. Just start by opening your eyes and looking at nature. Faith begins not with belief in a God, but in the God of the Scriptures. Faith begins with an acknowledgement. Wow, there's a God out there. Look at the beauty of creation. Look at the sun, look at the moon, look at the water, look at the sand, look at the trees, look at the birds, look at the animals. Look at the order. But that's not enough to please God because even the demons believe in the God of Scripture, James 2.19 tells us. The demons believe and shudder. You see, faith that pleases God moves beyond mere belief in a true God. Saving faith places your confidence in the work of God. His death, His burial, His resurrection, and the evidence of that faith is your surrender to His Lordship. And along with that saving faith is repentance. That's recognizing your sin. That's turning from sin to serve God. Acts chapter 26, verses 18 and 20. They should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I rejoice now that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For, salva for, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. 
1 Thessalonians 1, 9, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God to, or turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Let me make it very clear. If you've never repented, if you've never turned from your sin, let's, let, let me tell you something, you're not genuinely saved. You genuinely don't have true faith. Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You see, I'm afraid that even perhaps some of you listening may have professing faith, but you don't have possessing faith. You profess to have faith. You claim to be a Christian, but you don't truly possess that saving faith. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 7, 21. You see, genuine saving faith is proven or validated by the works it produces. James 2.14, what use is it, brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that kind of faith save him? Again, if someone says, this person does not possess saving faith. They claim to have saving faith. But they lack the evidence to support such a claim. You know, James questions whether that kind of faith, which continually lacks obedience to God's word, actually saves. Can that faith save him? No. Faith without obedience is like talking about compassion without actually displaying compassion. Again, James chapter 2, verse 15 to 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one, says, one of you says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and yet don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? And so faith without obedience to God's word is dead, James two seventeen. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. That word dead, necros, means it's inactive, it's inoperative, it's inoperative. It's fruitless, it's sinful, it's by itself. It's an empty profession. Indeed, true saving faith or fruitful faith is actively obedient to God's word. James 2.20 says, You foolish fellow, faith without works is useless. That foolish fellow, he's empty-headed, he's defective to think, to believe that he can have faith without producing obedience. The consummation of faith is demonstrated by believing God's words and His promise. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. There it is, right there. It ties right back to Matthew. Believing God will keep His word and fulfill His promise without any evidence is a demonstration of faith. And notice that those who have faith seek God. That is, they reach for someone, or in this case God, in a diligent manner. And isn't that what we're to be doing, seeking God in order to find Him, find life, and have being? Acts 17, verse 27 and 28, that we would seek God if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. You know, Enoch's the example given to us in the book of Hebrews who demonstrated faith by believing in God in his person, in his nature, and in his word. He demonstrated his faith by how? By diligently seeking after God. And as such, Hebrews 11.5 says, he pleased God and was rewarded by being raptured. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Why? He was, take, he was taken up because he was pleasing to God. God is pleased, Christian. When we demonstrate faith by living it, 
How do we demonstrate faith? How do we live faith? By believing God and His Word. That means obeying His Word. It's believing His promise. And the Bible warns, there's a warning here for all of us to heed. Those of you who are simply professing faith, listen, test and examine to see if your faith is real. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you indeed fail the test? Listen, it's good for all of us to test our faith. It's good for all of us to examine whether or not we're possessing faith or simply professing faith. But if you're truly interested in pleasing God, if that's your true ambition, then knowing how to please God begins with demonstrating faith. Pleasing God also is living in submission to the Holy Spirit. Living in submission to the Holy Spirit. The second means of pleasing God is by living in submission to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 to 9. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Everyone, every one of you listening, has a mindset, a phronio, that is an innate disposition. And your mindset determines how you act, how you make choices, how you view life, how you shape values. In other words, your mindset is how you live. And your, your mindset, my mindset, everybody's mindset can be categorized one of two ways. You either have a sinful mindset or a spiritual mindset. Now understand that the sinful mindset, how do you know if I've got a sinful mindset? Well, the sinful mind lives in submission to the flesh. And that leads to death and eternal damnation in the lake of fire. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, and therefore it cannot please God. That sinful mind wants to simply indulge in corrupt desires. 2 Peter 2 verse 10. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. So ask yourself, are you hostile to God? Well, I don't think I'm hostile to God. Okay, well let me ask you this. Do you submit to God's law? Are you obedient to what God has commanded you? If your answer is no, well... Case closed. Here's another way to know if your mind is sinful. A sinful mind lives for self-gratification in earthly things. Philippians 3.19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. What motivates you? Are you motivated by the things of God? Do you have any desire for the things of God? Or are you more content with what this world has to offer? The spiritual mindset lives in submission to the Spirit, which leads to eternal life and peace with God. Now see, those who live in submission to the Spirit are at peace with God, and they submit to God's law, and therefore they're pleasing to God. Living in submission to the Spirit means that you're living under His control. Romans 8.14 All who are being led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. Do you submit to the Holy Spirit's control over your life? See, at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit regenerated you, renewed you, and indwelled you. 
Before the work of the Holy Spirit, you lived according to your flesh. You fulfilled the sinful desires of your flesh. You dishonored God. But once you became a child of God, no longer should you desire to live according to such things. Matthew 6.24 is clear, Christian. You cannot serve two masters. You can't live for the flesh and live for God. You've got to make a choice. And the choice you make will determine your eternal destiny. There is no middle ground. You are either alive in Christ or you're dead to Christ. You can't be partially alive and partially dead. You can't be partially a child of God and partially a child of the devil. And my friends, if your mind is set on the flesh, that is only death. Romans 8 verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. If you're living your life submitting to the desires of the flesh, you are spiritually dead. You are still an unbeliever. Listen, you may be a religious person, you may be a moral person, but you're still dead in your trespass and sin. And God says your righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags. Your righteousness, in fact, is nothing more than self-righteousness. Your good works is not, not motivated by love for God, but simply love for yourself and a desire to gain favor with people. Your mind is set on your flesh. But my friend, if you're living in submission to the Holy Spirit, you're spiritually alive. Listen, there's no middle ground. You can't have your mind set on the Spirit and not be sensitive to the things of God. Now certainly we all sin. But sin should not be the natural bent and orientation of our life, Christian. We need to be joyfully agreeing, concurring, as Paul says in Romans 7.22. I joyfully concur with the law of God and the inner man. That's what we should be desiring. I want to be obedient to God. So ask yourself, what do you submit to? What's the driving force in your life? Your flesh, your sinful desires, or the word of God? If you've got the Holy Spirit, you're going to fight that flesh. Galatians 5, 16, 17 says, I walk by the Spirit and not, I will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Listen, if there's no evidence in your life of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, then you cannot legitimately claim to be a Christian. Fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Are those things evidence in your life? You say you want to please God, but are you living in submission to the Holy Spirit? The third means of pleasing God is by fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. Psalm 147, verse 10 to 11. God does not delight in the strength of the horse. He does not take pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord favors, that is, He is pleased with, those who fear him, those who wait for his loving kindness. Now let's talk about fear for a moment. There's three types of fear. There's healthy fear, harmful fear, and holy fear. Healthy fear is that God-given fight-or-flight mechanism. That's what protects us from danger or, or threat. Uh, harmful fears, what are they? Well, they're fears that result in um, anxiety or become an impediment that keep us from being able to do something. You know, so there's, there's healthy fear. I mean, if you see a rattlesnake, you know, healthy fear says you're not going to run towards it, okay? Uh, there's harmful fears that sometimes grip us, these anxieties, and they, they can sometimes become crippling. But then there is holy fear. 
Holy fear is of the Lord is a recognition and a reliance on God's power, which results in reverence or respect for God. Holy fear is acknowledging God's good intentions. And in that sense, the word fear, phobos, is a wholesome dread of God which results in submission. John MacArthur puts it this way, The fear of the Lord is a state of mind in which one's attitudes, will, feeling, deeds, and goods are exchanged for God's. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, Now, O Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God? That's, our, that's what God wants. He wants us to fear Him. He wants us to reverence Him. He wants us to have a state of mind in which our attitudes, will, feeling, deeds, and goals are His. Now, how do you learn to fear the Lord? Psalm 119.38 Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Proverbs 2, verse 5, you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. You see, you and I are only going to understand the fear of the Lord. We're only going to know how to fear the Lord to the degree that we study the Scripture. Studying Scripture results in discerning what the fear of the Lord is and discovering the knowledge of God. That word discover there, mean, in Proverbs 2, 5, means to get insight and develop a skill. We should be studying the Bible, not merely reading it, so that we can develop an attitude to recognize and rely on God's power. How are you doing with that? You know, if I said, how many, how many read the Bible? Well, you'd probably have a good amount of hands, maybe not as many as I'd like, but, you know, but if I said, how many of you actually study the Bible? I'm afraid there'd be far less hands. And make no mistake, reading the Bible is not studying the Bible. Okay, let's, let's be clear. Reading the Bible and studying the Bible are two different things. That word discover, there again in Proverbs 2 verse 5, means to attain something. If you never study God's word, you'll never attain his knowledge. You're going to continue in ignorance of who God is and what he's done. Attaining knowledge and wisdom of God is conditioned upon discerning the fear of the Lord. You want to fear the Lord, you've got to know the Lord. You can't know the Lord unless you study the word of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1.7. Say, so, well, listen, I have a difficult time studying God's Word. How do I study God's Word? Can somebody help me study God's Word? Listen, that's why we have opportunities to come and hear the Word of God preached and taught. Don't make the excuse and say, well, I don't know, when you've got plenty of opportunity to sit under the teaching and preaching of God's Word. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 23, 17 says, live in the fear of the Lord always. Listen, it's not, you shouldn't just live in the fear of the Lord when God comes down hard on you. Oh, there's something difficult going on in life. Oh, I better fear the Lord. We're to be living in the fear of the Lord all the time, which means we ought to always be studying the Word of God. Living in a perpetual state of relying on God's power and recognizing His good intentions enables us to please Him. It motivates us to avoid sin. Moses said to the people in Exodus 20, 20, Do not be afraid. God has not come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him might remain with you, so that you may not sin. Oh, man, I really struggle with sin. I don't know how to get victory over sin. I got the answer for you. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And how do I fear the Lord? By studying the Word. The more I study, the more I fear. The more I fear, the less I sin.
Living in the fear of the Lord protects and preserves us from deadly and destructive behaviors. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Proverbs 19.23 Fearing the Lord gives us not just confidence, but a strong confidence. Proverbs 14.26 and 27 In the fear of the Lord there is strong confidence. His children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may avoid the snares of death. This strong confidence comes from knowing the promises of God. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31, what a great promise of God. The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid what man will do to me. Another great promise of God. Romans 8.31 and Hebrews 13.6. It's that fear of the Lord that empowered the early church. You know, there's a reason why the book of Proverbs constantly refers to those who do not fear the Lord as fools. Three different terms in Proverbs translates the word fool. The term kasil describes the fool as the thick-headed, stubborn, lazy person. Nebel depicts the fool as lacking spiritual perception. And Ilwil defines the fool as an arrogant and flippant individual, someone who totally, deliberately rejects God. Don't be a fool. You want to please God? Fear the Lord. We also can please God by following Jesus. Following Jesus. This is the fourth means of pleasing God. He who has sent me is with me. He who has not left me alone, for I will always do the things that are pleasing to him, Jesus said in John 8, 29. Okay, so Jesus wants to please God. Luke 9, 23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You can sum up the entire life and ministry of Jesus in simply this, he pleased God. On two particular occasions, his baptism and his transfiguration, the Father announced that he was pleased with Jesus. And so when Jesus says to come after him, that, in other words, to follow him, that means that we're to follow him in what? Pleasing God. You can't please God if you're not following Jesus. You say, Pastor, what's that look like? What does it mean to follow Jesus? First, Luke 9.23 makes it clear, following Jesus is renouncing your self-centered life. Let him deny our name I repudiate, renounce, disown their former life. It's an imperative verb. You need to renounce it intentionally and completely. This is a complete renunciation of your selfish interests and desires. John Grasmick said that denying yourself is turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. You see, self-denial is renouncing your pride and living in obedience to God's command. It is taking yourself off the throne and putting Jesus on the throne. You see, that's the lordship of Jesus. Listen, i got news for you. It began at the moment of salvation, whether you knew it or not. But that lordship has to continue throughout your walk. If he's not the lord of your life, then you're not saved. Someone else is the lord of your life. Who's the lord of your life? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Not only means to renounce a self-centered life, but it also requires daily cross-bearing. They need to take up his cross daily. That's not, and by the way, oh, my cross to bear is dealing with this difficult person. Oh, my cross to bear is dealing with this pain. You don't know the first thing about cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is not dealing with displeasure. It's not bearing with difficulty. In Jesus' culture, the cross was the equivalent of the electric chair. When you bear a cross, that means you're marked by death. Daryl Box says cross-bearing publicly displays a person's submission to the state. It's a visible public affair that visualizes a person's humility before the state. 
Thus, the fundamental ideas of submitting to the authority of another, in this case, God. You see, bearing your cross daily is daily submitting and humbling yourself to Jesus to the point of death. Have you identified with Jesus in his life and death? See, identifying with Jesus means you're going to face oppression sometimes. Identifying with Jesus means you're going to be ostracized sometimes. But that's cross-bearing. You want to please God, bear the cross, follow Jesus. And third, following Jesus isn't just denouncing yourself, denouncing your self-centered life and bearing your cross, but it means to follow in continual submission to him as Lord. That's what the word follow means, to submit as a servant. It's an ongoing process. It's an imperative, follows an imperative. It's intentional, it's complete. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. John 12, 26. He is Lord, and that means you've got to obey his commands. If you love him, he said, if you love me, keep my commands. See, salvation is not just believing He is a Savior, it's submitting Him as Lord. You've got to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead to be saved, Romans 10, 9. And by the way, no one can claim that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. That is the submission to His Lordship following Jesus. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Praise God, at the moment of salvation, He indwelled us. At the moment of salvation, then, we began submitting to His Lordship. But what it means is I've got to continually be submitting to His Lordship throughout my life. And so I ask you, you say you want to please God, well, are you following Jesus? Are you forsaking, renouncing your self-centered life? Are you bearing that cross? Are you submitting and humbling yourself to the point of death for Christ? And are you following Him as Lord? Another means by which we can please God is by obeying His will, obeying God's will. Hebrews 13, 21, The God of peace equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Hebrews 13, 21, The fifth means of pleasing God is obeying God's will. See, the Father has equipped us to do His will. You know, everybody talks about, I wish I knew what God's will was. There's books, all kinds of books written on the topic. And you would think, man, if all the books written, everybody would be doing God's will. But you know what? They're not. You want to know why? Because all those books fail to tell you one thing. God's will is His commands as found in the Bible. If we would simply start there, it would all work itself out. God's will is for us to be holy, to be sanctified. First Thessalonians 4, 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. What does sanctify mean? To be holy, free from sin, purified, declared or rendered, conductive for holiness. You see, when we were saved, God made us holy. That is, He separated us ethically and morally from the world. But we need to go on to sanctification. There's a practical aspect of sanctification that plays out in our daily life. Yes, we're set apart from sin, but now we need to strive to be holy in our daily life. That's what Ephesians 4.24 says, put on the new self which is created in righteousness and holiness. Colossians 3, verse 1 to 4. You've been raised up with Christ. Seek the things above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. 1 Peter 1, 16. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. 
You see, being holy is think, seeking things above, seeking the kingdom of God, setting your mind on the things above. That's God's righteousness. We can sum it up real simple. Be holy as I am holy. Be like God. Imitate his character. Well, what's his character? It's found in his law. Holiness, perfection, love, grace, mercy, so on and so forth. Do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait for your ordinances, so I will keep your law continually forever and ever. Psalm 119, 43 to 44. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. John 17, 17. Obedience to the word of truth is a means to be sanctified. And finally, there is another means by which we can please God, and that's by offering sacrifices. The sixth means of pleasing God is offering sacrifices. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. Let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Now the sacrifices we're referring to here are sacrifices of our body. Romans 12 verse 1. I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Now, in the Old Testament, sacrifices were often dead animals. But because Jesus has redeemed us, he now requires a living sacrifice of our bodies. Now, offering my life, offering your life sacrificially to the Lord is our spiritual service. There in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the logikos latria, that's serving as a priest. When we do our spiritual or our priestly duty, we demonstrate God's good, perfect, and acceptable will so that you may prove the will of God that is good, acceptable, and perfect. Romans 12, verse 2. Now, Hebrews 13 told us we're commanded to offer sacrifices of praise to God. So, with my life, now we're talking about my lips. See, believer, because our sins have been forgiven, we're to offer a sacrifice of praise to God with our lips. We're to be giving thanks to His name. Hosea chapter 14 verse 3 talks about the fruit of our lips. What is the fruit of our lips? Praise to his name for what he has done. You know, in the Hebrew culture, one's name is, is often associated with their character or their attributes. So when we're giving forth a sacrifice of praise or a sacrifice of our lips, we're making an open proclamation of God's attributes. And notice with that sacrifice of our lips is also the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. Now here comes the life aspect. My lips need to be praising him, but my life needs to be serving him. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Doing good is all kinds of acts towards others. Sharing means to have in common. Having in common means that I'm sharing the essentials of life with those who lack and are unable to work for them. These essentials include emotional, financial, and physical needs. As we saw in James 2, verse 15 and 16, if a brother or your sister is without clothing, need of daily food, and you say, go in peace, be worn and filled, yet don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use was it? Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 1 John three seventeen. This is what Paul talked about in Philippians four eighteen. I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. He doesn't tell us what exactly they sent, but what they sent was a sacrifice. It was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. 
You say your ambition is to please God. Well, my friend, if you're truly pleasing God, let me ask you, are you offering sacrifices? Are you praising God with your lip? Are you sharing with your life? Are you obeying God's will? Are you willing to do what He's commanded? Are you following Jesus? Are you denying yourself? Are you taking up that cross? Are you following Him? Are you fearing the Lord? Are you living in reverence of Him? Are you living in submission to the Holy Spirit? And my friends, are you demonstrating faith? You want to know how to please God. Demonstrate faith, live in submission to the Holy Spirit, fear the Lord, follow Jesus, obey His will, and offer such sacrifices. Pleasing God is not merely following a set of rules. It's not, it's not a list of prohibitions to avoid. Pleasing God is to be your manner of living. Live in a manner that pleases God. Walk as children of the light. Strive to learn what is pleasing to God. Follow these six things, and you will be pleasing to God. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that you've laid out before us the means by which we can please you. Certainly, Father, I'm sure that all of us would say we want to please you, but Father, sometimes what we say and what we do are two different things. Father, if there's someone listening, Lord, and they've, they've confessed before you that they're not pleasing you as you, they should, then Lord, I pray that you would help them to see these six areas, help them to ascertain what areas they need to work on, what areas they're weak in, that, Father, they may be strengthened in such things. And in doing so, Father, that they would be able to pronounce before your presence that I am pleasing to you. I'm pleasing to you because I'm demonstrating faith. I'm pleasing to you because I live in submission to your spirit. I'm pleasing to you because I fear you. I reverence you. I'm, I'm, I'm pleasing to you because I'm following your son, my savior. I'm pleasing you because I'm obeying your will. I'm pleasing you because I'm offering sacrifice with my lip and my life. Father, I pray that that not just be our prayer, but that might be our truth. We pray in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.